welcome to the GPPR podcast. My name is Justin Goss. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Public Policy Review. I'm joined, as always, by my silent partner, senior interview editor, Kevin Barslow. And today, we are thrilled to be joined by geopolitics fellow, Marlon Marshall. Hello, hey, sir. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really good. Um, so our listeners should absolutely be acquainted with all of the things that you've done throughout your political career and policy career. But just in case they're not, here here's a few of the highlights. Um, I understand you've been active in democratic politics for over 12 years. That you were scary. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Did, uh, <clears throat> uh, twelve years. Um, most recently, as a senior member of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign team, um, you were the director of the state campaigns and political engagement. Um, you worked in the. Uh, you you came to the campaign after having served as special assistant to the president and principal deputy director in the White House to the Office of Public Engagement, um, you've ser- where you helped uh, roll out the Affordable Care Act, um, and you were also instrumental in launching the My Brother's Keeper initiative, which we actually talked about last time we mm-hmm. visited with you on a podcast. Yeah. Um, and as we'll talk about later, you're a huge Kansas Jayhawks fan. I mean, woo! <laughs> also known as the number one ranked basketball team in the country. Just one third in there. Frank Mason, yeah. player of the year. Yeah, I, I, he should win the Wooden Award. I mean, he's he's outstanding player and person. He's balling. Yeah. All right. But uh, let's talk policy first before, sure. before we get into that stuff. So first, how's your, how's your discussion group going so far? It's great. The third one is actually today. Uh, so the first week we spent talking about just kind of organizing big picture um, with uh, Donald Trump as president and what does that mean and, you know, how the protests are a good thing to happen because it drives a narrative in our media. Uh, but then you also got to keep going and register voters and if we, we got to actually get changed in some of our elected officials for a long-term change. Uh, and then last week, we talked about immigration reform. So we had two uh, great guests, Abed Ayub with um, uh, the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee and Alita Garcia with Ford.us um, and talked a lot about the work they're doing around Trump's Muslim ban, just around his immigration reform plans or maybe lack thereof right now. Um, so... And then today we're talking about women's rights, and we have uh, Kelly Robinson uh, joining us as well. So so far, it's awesome and just great discussion from all the students who've been participating. So the ethos of your discussion group, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is grassroots mm-hmm. political and policy organizing. Is right. that right? Yeah. Cool. And you and you just mentioned women's rights, and you mentioned um, uh, protests and act and activism. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's start there, where yeah. there's there's been a good amount of political science, social science research talking about how protest movements, um, they they synthesize with the media, they cause attention cascades, they get a lot of public attention that trickles upwards to elected representatives who want to keep their jobs and galvanizes support for certain aspects of social change. Um, but recently we saw one of the largest protests of my lifetime, at least, in the Women's March mm-hmm. on Washington D.C., mm-hmm. huge, huge event by 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 most by most metrics metrics of success mm-hmm. in terms of how many people turned out. Um, but we haven't yet seen that translate into policy change yet. Mm-hmm. Is this is this a sign that the way that the public interfaces with the with the government in terms of driving attention to issues is changing, or 
Do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't think it's changing. I think that I think there's more ways for the public to draw attention to the uh, government. Um, but I think one, the women's march was what 35 days ago or so. So I think we're still in uh, new newish area. Uh, and two, I think the purpose of that march actually was not necessarily. It was policy change. It was also policy protection. <laughs> um, and um, there are, you've already seen this administration start to backtrack in some of their rhetoric around certain things, such as, I'm just going to use ACA, for example, because something I'm familiar with. Um, you know, in his speech the other night, a lot of the things he laid out are not necessarily things we've heard from the Republican Party before. So um, I think it's powerful. I think one of the biggest things it did was drive a narrative into his first few days of like, hey, he's the new president, but there's also uh, don't forget the people and the people are going to continue to speak loudly. Uh, and But it can't just be at one time. I think it's going to be over and over again. I thought it was a, um, a great day, not only in the country, but I think uh, across the world there was protests. Uh, I think that's a very powerful statement about uh, where this world is going. That's a good point, though, that some of the goals associated with, with that event were more so, in, in some ways, preservation of the status quo and path dependence. And, and you're right, to the point that we've seen the administration maybe sort of cool its heels, though, mm-hmm. like you said, it's still early. Um, that that's that then changes the metrics by which we evaluate mm-hmm. how, how they interface. So, fair point. Um, but let's, let's flip sides of the table mm-hmm. and talk about how the government interfaces with people. Mm-hmm. So last week, uh, your geopolitics uh, colleague, Jen Saki said that the bully pulpit is dead. Um, mm. And we've got to, and we've got to find new ways, especially from the executive interfacing with the public and communicating complicated policies. You've done a lot of that, like, like, we've, like you've mentioned uh, with the ACA. What was the biggest challenge that you faced when trying to communicate a complex policy, pick your pick your favorite, to the general public? I think the biggest challenge is that when the ACA happened, the other the Republicans defined it as big government, uh, government taking over your health care, and the narrative just kind of spread, right? Even though that, in my opinion, wasn't reality, um, the narrative spread. And so then you have... Um, I think it's some late night talk shows have done this where people will be like, what do you think about Obamacare? Oh, it's terrible. What do you think about the Affordable Care Act? I think it's fantastic, right? <laughs> so it's the biggest problem is, is competing against a narrative um, uh, and not necessarily factual information. So one of the things we tried to do from the White House was work with city and local governments who had high populations of uninsured to go out there and do outreach and to really connect with people on a value base uh, level. So, what does it mean to get healthcare? What does it mean? Um, you know, what are people's personal stories? Um, particularly when you find the uninsured, that usually means that um, you know they have not been able to pay for something, or that they ha- already have uh, they've been ill and it's caused them debt. So, when you actually trying to translate policy into actual stories that affect people, uh, that's what people digest. They digest that personal connection um and that's what we try to do in the white house working with our partners around the affordable care act why is it that narratives are so much easier to latch on to than facts like is is the truth hard because, <laughs> and, and like, like, I, like i mean that i like yeah. I, I mean that somewhat facetiously but you know but like it's it's really interesting to me where some of these narratives come from like 
there was discussion during the rollout as to whether or not they were going to put a ceiling on cost of treatment. Yeah. And that got translated into death panels. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> death panels. Right. Like, how, how do, so, so what, what is it that narratives are easier to latch onto and they also seem to persist a little bit longer than the truth? Yeah. Let me my last opinion. So, I think there's too much money involved in politics. And... What happens is, in a case, again, we use affordable care, for example, certain people with a lot of money did not think that was good or will affect their bottom line in a certain way. So then what's the solution to that? Let's create a narrative mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that can get out there that will just distort this. And as human beings, you all know this, we're so busy that, um, you know, we get our news in small bites and pieces, right? And so the it's very easy to to get latch onto a narrative, then to take a, you know the time to say like, okay, what's really going on, right? And you expect our media and stuff to like kind of give us those facts. Um, so I think our site is almost just too narrative driven. Period. Couple that with um, the money that's involved in our politics right now, and just makes for uh, uh, a very sticky situation. That's frankly why I'm a believer in organizing because nothing beats that on the ground person talking to a person, having a conversation, telling that personal story. Cause then you get a chance to break apart narratives and talk about the truth. So when, so when you are trying to split out these narratives, what does, what does branding or issue framing, how does that factor into the, into the communication that you do where, you, you mentioned, and it's pretty astounding, and some of our listeners might not know, but multiple polls, specifically I'm citing a Morning Consult poll, showed that about a third of Americans didn't know that Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act were the same thing. Mm-hmm. And when one was threatened, they're like, oh, wait, what? Mm-hmm. So, so tying that back into the uh, question that I really want to ask is how, how, how do you... How do you frame how do you frame issues to communicate these ideas effectively where the Republicans successfully framed the ACA as Obamacare, which mm-hmm. is something that their constituents did not like, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Affordable Care Act, which is more value neutral? I think it's very easy. First of all, it's easier to organize against something than it is for something. Right. So because um, when, when you're for something, you have to explain the merits and why it benefits people. Right. And why it benefits them. When you get something, it's just like, that's bad. Here's why it's bad. It's just so it's just so much easier. Um, I think framing is important. I think the challenge of framing is you not only have to create a frame that the general public, the diverse public understands, but then um, obviously this country is very diverse. You have Americans of all different walks of life. So how do you create smaller frames that really relate to certain communities? Um, so it's a challenge. And I think, you know, I... I give Republicans some credit. I think they've done a really good job in terms of being able to frame complex issues into very simple ways. Um, and I think progressives, we sometimes, um, because we care so much about certain issues, um, it's hard for us sometimes just kind of boil it down to some simple framing. Um, and so as we move forward, I think something we need to do is how do we um, frame issues um, that can be uh, simple to digest for the broader public, but then also be able to do it 
uh, for specific communities as well. Got it. Yeah. So in addition to framing, what are some of the other tools that you found are effective in terms of translating difficult, harder to understand, you know, hundreds of page long policy proposals to the general public when you're trying to do grassroots organizing? Yeah. Because like we as, we as policy students, like we're like cranking out linear regressions yeah. and stuff like that. But I'm... I'm not even like my girlfriend doesn't even want to listen to me talk about my thesis. No one does. Right. Um, don't want to listen to me talk about my thesis or like what my regression results are. Or, like, and that's and that's someone who loves me. But but like, what do you what do you do when when you're talking to someone who you don't know very well and you're trying to get them to care about this actually very technical proposal you have? Mm-hmm. I always, I mean, I always. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it always goes back to the personal story. So I will. Um, as an organizer, you try to think of a story you have about yourself or about family or about somebody you know about almost any issue that is out there. And, you know, the thing I'll just keep, we'll stay on the affordable care act because I think that's a good example. Um, people knew, at the end of the day, one of the things that everyone knew is like, uh, you can no longer be denied insurance because of pre-existing condition, right? Um, so between that and then just people who cannot afford insurance, uh, who can now afford it. Those are kind of two big things when you get out of the quote-unquote death panels and all that stuff, like you could rise up to some like, here's some tangible nuggets. And when people were able to tell a story around that, um, you know, some uh, organizer being able to share that uh, they were finally able to sign up for health insurance because the, um, you know, whatever ail- uh, ailment they had was no longer a uh, knock to them. And They've been, you know, I, I heard stories of people being rejected three or four times because they had been a little bit sick. So when you tell it in that nature and explain why this bill matters, you get out of the 1,000 page, you know, mumbo jumbo and into the like, okay, at the end of the day, this is what this does. Um, and uh, I think we've actually done, now that it's kind of like, oh, are they going to repeal it? I think we've done a much better job of being able to say, here's what this means, not only because um uh there's special information behind it but also like there's now millions of people who've been able to take advantage of it mm-hmm. um and when you have now people are starting to see like oh these this is actually lives it's not just a bill or a narrative these, these are lives who are being affected by it uh and that story which was happening on the ground for a while i think now starting to get into national press which i think is helping put republicans on the defensive and that sort of ties back into what you said before, where it's a little bit easier to be the opposition and Bingo. defend the right. status mm-hmm. quo mm-hmm. than it is to try and move away from it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. In in terms in terms of the public's responsibility, are are there any like fundamental disconnects or like concepts that you found are really difficult that don't that don't translate super well into grassroots organizing that you think that maybe like our education institutions could do a better job of closing that gap a little bit. I, I mean, I think most issues you can always find a story around. What I do think that our educational slash government systems need to do a better job of is just like the history and the um, uh, of our country and the um, the civic background of our country, right? So I remember going to you know grade school and high school. Everything you learn is so. I don't want to sound negative, but everything you learn is so positive, so forward-looking, and let's take issues such as race, for example. Uh, you don't really get into the weeds of like 
what happened or how um, you know government institutions still to this day have systemic barriers that hold people of color back, right? Just because of uh, it's you haven't necessarily gotten rid of all the laws that happened a long time ago, right? And obviously we're in a way different place than we were, you know, when my mom was coming up. But uh, but that story's not told, and I think we have to really start to tell that story in order to understand how we've gotten to where we are. And I actually think it will help us understand each other as Americans better. Uh, and that to me is something that our, our government and our education system can do a better job of is um, telling the, the real history of our country. And um, that will help us solve some of the problems that we always face. Some of that, I, I agree with you. Some of that is also due to federalism and uh, exactly. how, sta- how states control education. Right. Because in 2015, uh, when College Board redesigned the advanced placement U.S. history curriculum, uh, Oklahoma, I believe it was, um, uh, banned the curriculum mm-hmm. from being taught because they said it did not enforce ideas of American exceptionalism properly. Exactly. So, yeah. So, mm-hmm. th- so things are different, but mm-hmm. but there's there's still there's still a long road long road to hoe. Um, back to organizing, though. Um, would you say that it's become easier, harder, or just different to get messages out to the to craft messages to the public in the age of social media? Oh man. Um... <laughs> Probably a little harder and definitely different. Um, I think what's harder is back in the pre-social media, you had just a few outlets for which to get your message out, right? You had cable and you had ads and network TV. And now people, particularly millennials, there's so much, so many different channels for which you can get your information, whether it be Facebook or, you know, Vice or Mike or all these, there's so many different places now to get your message. And so um, there's still some big ones, but now it's just a little bit more um, uh, bite size. This community, this this thing serves this community. This thing serves that community. It's just so much more now. Um, and then it's, I think also in social media, just there's just a um, creation of just way more noise, right? So, um, there's so much different, obviously, opinion, but also just um, spin on whatever nugget because social media is just so easy to share all that and get it moving, et cetera. So I think it's harder. I think it's a little bit different. I think that, um, you know, campaigns uh, uh, probably we need to continue to look at the ways we're getting our message out. Um, TV is important. It's not, not important anymore, but it's probably less important. Uh, and uh, how do we not just communicate, but engage the public uh, using tools as social media. Um, I think we probably scratched a little bit on that, but we have a ways to go. Fair enough. Yeah. So we'll get we'll get you out of here on this. Mm-hmm. Um, community organizing and grassroots movements were historically associated with the fight for social justice, civil rights, civil liberties. Um, but do you think, given recent events, that these methods can be used to fight against those ideals? Oh, against social justice? No. No? No. I, well, I don't think people who are against those ideas um, organize in the way people who are for those ideas do. Um, and I think they're big on narrative. Uh, but the long-sustaining 
fighting for what's right. Um, there's some of that. Don't get me wrong. There's like, you know, there's some extremism that happens that is sustained, but I think it, it's um, less and less. And the other thing I think, and this is what I've learned really being at Georgetown, is that the, the next generation is so um, uh, vocal and one out throughout there and organize and also want everyone to just be equal. And some of the, uh, what I love about it, some of the, uh, the fights that this country has had, uh, they're just like, well, that was stupid. <laughs> like, why, why, you know, you didn't let this person uh, do this because they were a different skin color? That's dumb, right? And and it just, they, there's no, they're not as tolerant over it. So I think we can take that passion, combine it with some history, so they know how we got to that point that I mentioned before. Um, uh, I actually think that the, the sky's the limit for where we're going. That's an impressively optimistic e- ending to this podcast. <laughs> so... To the the idea being that in terms of disseminating a message in through a grassroots movement, maybe maybe the truth it you can only get so many people to buy what, buy what you're selling if you want to organize in that manner and right. really promote social change. Right. Interesting, but yeah, to your to your point that yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty now, right. but you're right. Like history history definitely has an enduring importance for us um, because for whatever reason those decisions weren't that easy at right. the time. And we're probably facing certain decisions now right. that generations in the future are going to look back and be like, why why, you... why were they scratching their heads over that? That's right. Last, last question. Um, who So who is going to contest in the championship game of the Big 12 men's basketball <laughs> tournament and who is going to win that championship game? Uh, I will say it will be Kansas right. versus... Um, Ooh. Oh man, you can't even name another team in the conference. I can name another team in the conference. Confident. I just think I'm gonna say Kansas versus. I haven't seen the bracket, yet, so we'll see all seeds out. Kansas versus West Virginia. Ooh, okay. Uh, West Virginia. And I think that uh, uh, I will be there to witness another Jayhawk Big Twelve Championship tournament title en route to the number one overall seed in the tournament. Do okay. All right. Bold, bold prediction. Bold, bold bias. Do you think there will be more funny moments involving Bill Self or Bob Stoops during the game? Uh, Bill Self. I love Bill Self. All right. There we go. I love Bill Self. All right. This has been <laughs> the GPPR podcast with a little bit of college athletics thrown in <laughs> because we don't have any to talk about at Georgetown right now, if you, um, unfortunately. Anyway, Mr. Marlon Marshall, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more exciting content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website, gppreview.com, our Twitter, at gppolicyreview, and our Facebook, gppreview. For more content from the podcast, make sure to follow us on iTunes at GPPR and on SoundCloud, gppreview.